0: If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. So with the Thanksgiving season finished, with Thanksgiving finished, the Christmas season has officially begun. I know there's some debate among people whether or not your Christmas tree should be up before Thanksgiving or not. I know some do and some don't. I know Eliza, we, we've been very intentional trying to teach her that Christmas is about Jesus, and we had already put up our tree because we'd be out of town for, for Thanksgiving, and it would be up when we came back. Um, we were at my grandmother's house, and she asked us on the way out, why didn't she have a tree up? Does she not love Jesus? And, and so I had to share that with her. She sent me a picture uh, later that evening and said, I've started to decorate. Make sure G- Eliza knows that I love Jesus. So... <laughs> So we are celebrating the Christmas season, which is the, the beginning, uh, which is the birth of our Savior, right? There, every year there is the reminder, the, the uh, admonition to put the Christ in Christmas, to keep the Christ in Christmas, to remember the reason for the season, which is Jesus Christ and what we are celebrating. And this year, as you notice, we have the Advent candles, and we are looking at each week at the different themes of Advent, which the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. We are celebrating the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of our Savior. So uh, we're going to be entering into a, a series called the Celebration of the Incarnation, which the Incarnation simply being G- Christ, God in the flesh. That's what incarnate means, in the flesh. So God in the flesh with us. And each week has a theme, uh, the theme of the Advent season. And the first theme is this year, the first theme we're looking at is hope. And so as we look at the idea of hope, we're going to be turning to Psalm 130 uh, to get a, a better idea of what the hope that people had that they were looking forward to. The hope that the people of Israel had when they looked forward to, when they looked towards God. What was their idea of hope in God? And as they looked forward to the coming Messiah and the salvation that God provides. And before we read the scripture, I want to give you a little bit of context for this passage you may notice at the very top, before verse 1, it said that, that this is a song of ascents. A song of ascents. Um, and Psalms 120 through 134 are labeled as songs of ascents. Now, this is most likely a reference to these being songs that would be sung by the people who were making a pilgrimage to the temple. So as they were ascending to the temple, they would sing these things and, and, and praise God and remember the hope that they have in him. Right? So you may think about when you go on a road trip, there are some common songs you may turn to, some common road trip songs. I know the first time you get in a car, you're heading on a long journey. One of the ones comes to my head is, I on the road again? Right, So this is the kind of thing they would do. They would prepare their hearts, prepare to go and worship the Lord at the temple. They would sing these songs of ascents to remind themselves of who God is. Another interpretation of what this might mean is that it's a spiritual represent, representation of the soul's ascent to God. This is possibly also an antiphonal psalm, which really the simplest way to understand it is just like a call and response, right? Where you would one group would sing one part and the other part would sing the other, to, where one would have this one portion of the psalm where they're expressing something and the other one answers them with the, the response to it. So this psalm should be understood as a reminder In a chorus about the hope and salvation of God. So, with that in mind, let's start and read all eight verses of Psalm or all all eight verses of Psalm one thirty. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept account of if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. So that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in His word. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with Him is redemption in abundance, and He will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to gather together to to look at what your word says to us. And God, I pray that in in these next few moments, as we look at what your word does say to us, God, that you would would be with us, that you would help us to seek you, to help us to follow you, help us to learn what your word is saying, help us to be obedient, Lord, to help us find the hope that you provide. God, I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Psalm 130, the first thing we see is that we all need hope. We all need hope. And hope is something I think that is pervasive in culture, right? The, the first Star Wars movie is a new hope. In the famous line, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Every movie that you watch really has a foundation of hope. There is a problem that must be solved. And the only reason people pursue a solution to that problem because they have a hope that it can be solved. When there is a problem or an obstacle, there is this hope that it can be solved, right? The the idea behind these things, behind the idea of hope is that there is a solution. There is something that can come. There is an end in sight. The first thing that we see in, in this passage are the words, Out of the depths out of the depths. I think we all have had times where we have felt hopeless in our life. We feel like things are, are difficult. There, people are more likely now than ever to experience hopelessness. I think if there's ever been a time we need hope or we've experienced hopelessness, it's been in this past year where it seems like everything we've known has been turned upside down and we don't know what the future holds. Depression and thoughts of suicide increase each year, increase each year. People struggle with hope. They feel like they don't have any hope. And this idea of the depths in Scripture in the Old Testament is used to refer to the darkest of places and the hardest of days. I think Psalm 69, 1 through 3, gives us a, a better, clearer picture of exactly what these depths mean. Save me, God, for the water has risen to my neck. I have sunk in deep mud and there is no footing. I have come into deep water and a flood sweeps over me. I am weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Have you ever felt this way? Like you're drowning? That's what is described in Psalm 69. I think that is what the depths refer to in Psalm 130, this feeling of drowning, this overwhelming of despair and grief, this idea that nothing is going right, that you're looking to God and you don't don't know if you'll see the answer. The truth is, is that we all struggle with hopelessness. We all struggle with hard days for various reasons. We all struggle with hopelessness. I think the reality we must understand is that all hopelessness is a result of sin. All hopelessness is a result of sin. And what I mean by that, if we look at the source of sin, Genesis chapter 3, all hopelessness results from what began here. Adam and Eve were, were created in God's image and fellowship with God. They had perfect union with him in the garden, but they disobeyed him. They ate the fruit they were commanded not to eat. And from then, mankind has been broken and has had a sinful nature this has resulted in all of the hurt and all of the brokenness that exists in the world today. Now, hopelessness from sin always comes in one of three ways. One of three ways we will experience hopelessness as a result of sin. There is the hopelessness that is caused by a fallen world. Now, this is the reality that sometimes things just happen that cannot be controlled. No one is at fault, but hard times come. Disease, Natural disasters, things that no one has caused, no one was at fault for, but things that still cause hopelessness, cause hurt, cause pain. These things are a result of the fallen world we live in. The idea that we live in a fallen world is the reason that that some of these things, disease, sickness, natural disasters, and all death exist because of the corruption of sin. And when these things afflict us, they may not be the fault of others or our own fault, but we realize that we live in, we must realize we live in an imperfect world. That these things will occur in an imperfect world. And next, I think we see the hopelessness that is caused by the sin of others. The hopelessness that is caused by the sin of others. Now, I think this is probably our most favorite source of hopelessness to point to, right? That someone else has done this to me. It's someone else's fault that I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. Now, while this will not always be true, and we'll get to that in a moment, but there are certainly times where other people are a major part or a major play a major role in the hopelessness that we feel. Think about when a person steals from you. A person that you trusted betrays your trust. When people take advantage of, of the power that they have over the less fortunate, including times where adults abuse children. These are things that people do in their own sinfulness. When a person who has been drinking gets behind the wheel of a car, their sin can often result in the hurt of others, the hopelessness of others. These can vary in severity from someone that shares a secret that wasn't that big of a deal to someone that ends life and tears apart a family. Sometimes other people's sin causes the hopelessness that we may encounter. We see this example in the Bible. Think of King David before he was king, after he'd already been anointed king, but while he is still serving faithfully under Saul, Saul had already been rejected because of his own sin. But his paranoia and his realization that his kingdom is coming to an end causes him to persecute and pursue and try to kill David who's on the run. And many of the Psalms we see expressing hopelessness about his enemies coming after him are from David. He's expressing this hopelessness. My enemies afflict me. I've done nothing but serve you, but people are coming against me. Sometimes other people's sin causes the hopelessness, the situations we feel. At the same time, another example that we see is Uriah killed by King David. Later in the story, after David is king, because of his own sin, where he commits adultery with Bathsheba, trying to cover it up, he he brings Uriah home and tries to get these things covered up. But Uriah is a a faithful and diligent soldier, and David's plan is not successful. So what does he do? Sends him to the front lines, commands everyone to abandon him so that he will be killed. The same one who is afflicted by others becomes the one who afflicted. That's a story we often see where when we have become hurt, we will often hurt others as well. There's the saying that hurt people hurt people. And we see that played out here. So sometimes hopelessness comes from other people's sin, but sometimes hopelessness is caused by our own sin. This is the one we don't like to acknowledge or look at. This is the one where we like to try to cast blame off in other places. But we must be aware of this. If we find that the relationships that we are in are constantly struggling, at some point we must look at ourselves and see what role we play. This is the guilt that we feel when we sin. This is the bad things that, that happen to us after we do wrong things. If, if you do something and it's a sinful action and the, a bad result occurs, it's not, it's not that someone else is hurting you, it's that you have done this thing to yourself. The person that chooses to make poor decisions, go places they shouldn't be to, to engage in ways they shouldn't engage, should not be surprised when bad things happen. And this is not what, what I mean by this. is not some external punishment that's coming about you, but the results of your own actions. If you break the law, you shouldn't be surprised when you go to jail. Your own sin caused your state of hopelessness. And sometimes these things are not immediate Many of you may be able to trace some of the physical ailments that you suffer with today to the ways you abuse your body in your youth. I'm not very old, but when I was 13, my shoulder was torn up because of pitching, and I don't know if I will be able to throw in the same way with my children, the way my dad threw with me. But that's because of what I did when I was younger. We may not feel the effects of sin and poor decisions until years later, But at some point, we must look in the mirror and understand that often the hopelessness we feel is caused by our own sinfulness. Two examples of this from the Bible. Jonah in the whale. Why was Jonah in the depths? This is this very idea too. He was in the depths, in darkness, destroyed, right? Why was he there? He disobeyed God. God told him to go here and he went as far away from there as he could get. Go to Nineveh, he was on the run. His own sin brought about his hopelessness. We also see the story of the prodigal son, who his greed and his sinfulness and, had taken him to his father to say, give me my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. Give it to me now so I can live and enjoy it now. And he finds himself eating or, or working and wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating. And he realized what he had done. He realized that his hopelessness was because of what he had done, his own sinfulness. Now, this does not make you any different than the other people in the world. All people are hopeless and separated from God because of their sin. And there's a shame that comes from realizing the state of our hopelessness, that it's our own fault. Our default reaction may be to cast blame to others, but we must, or or to blame others or to, to justify our actions. But in understanding our sinfulness, we must come to realize where our hope must be placed. When we cry out for help, where are we turning? We should take a note from the psalmist in Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. Out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. When we are hopeless, we must turn to the one who created us and sustains us, Yahweh. And that is the the personal name for God. And when you see in in the Bible, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals, that is the word that is there, Yahweh. Yahweh. And, and most simply, the, the, the most simple way to probably understand that what that word means is, what that name means is I am. The great I am is the one that we should call to, the, the, the only God, the Lord. Not this idea or concept of God, but a personal God who wants a relationship with each and every one of us, who, who came in the flesh in Christ, the, the hope that we are hoping in. When we are in the depths, we should cry to the Lord, the Lord God, because our hope comes from God. Our hope comes from God. And so in verses three and four, we become even more keenly aware of our own need for hope. It says, if God kept track of iniquities, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? If God were to count sin, if he were to hold us accountable for the things that we do, the the hopelessness that we cause by our own sin, the, the state we are in, who could stand? No one. And this is an idea that is echoed and seen in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is one of the things I want you to understand very clearly today. The God that we serve today, the God that we worship, the things we know about him are the same things that have been true from the beginning of time. God has not changed, nor will he ever change in Psalm 143, 2, it says, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. And then hundreds of years removed from this in, in Romans three, 3, 20, it says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Scripture is clear, Old Testament, New Testament, both, that all people are sinful, all people are guilty before God and cannot please God through the works of the flesh. While verse 3 makes it clear that none are righteous, verse 4 is the turning point of this entire psalm. Up to this point, everything is despair and crying out to the Lord. Everything is looking at our hopelessness, sinfulness, and inability to please God. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me feel very good about myself. It should make you feel very good about yourself because when we realize our guilt before God, that should produce a shame in us. But we see the words, but with you, there is forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness. This is the same thing we see in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3 express the sinfulness of man, how all people follow in in a sinful life. But in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, it says... But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. There's this idea of God's intercession. Now, in our world, there's almost a comical idea that the word but precedes bad news, right? On a date, you would never want to hear, you're so nice and sweet, but I just want to be friends. Or at work, you would never hear, you're such a great worker, but we're going to have to let you go. Right? We live in a culture where the idea of but usually precedes some bad news. We like to sugarcoat things. In Scripture, it's almost the exact opposite. All of the bad news comes first. So that when the, when the idea of but God comes, we can realize just how good he is. And I want you to understand too that but, God, but with God there is forgiveness means that without God and His intervention, we would have a very poor outlook. And that this idea of forgiveness that is used for God in the Old Testament comes from the word sliha that is only ever used in reference to Yahweh. So what that means is that maybe the Old Testament would say you should forgive each other, you should forgive, there should be forgiveness. When it's talking about people to people, this word is not used. It is only used in connection to Yahweh, connection to God. So there's this idea that that God is the only one who can forgive and that forgiveness belongs to God alone. And in the form of a noun, it only appears three times in Scripture, and one of those is in Psalm 130. Daniel 9.9 also says, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against Him. And in Nehemiah 9.17, it refers to God as a loving God there's a clear and undeniable understanding that forgiveness belongs to God and only God can forgive. You see these things that we talk about, how forgiveness is only found in God, there is one way to salvation. That was present in the Old Testament. That was present among the people of Israel. I think this is why there was such indignation when, in Mark chapter two, when, when the, the, the men brought the paralytic to Jesus. In Mark two, five through seven It says this, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? You see, the Pharisees were theologically correct. They understood that only God can forgive sins. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus was God in the flesh, he had the authority to forgive sin. So forgiveness belongs to the Lord alone. And this hope has been further revealed and realized as forgiveness from God being accomplished and made available through the work of Jesus Christ. This is echoed in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This concept of God's forgiveness is present in Psalm 130 is made clear and active in who Jesus is. It's personified and put into action in who Jesus is. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope of Christmas, that Jesus Christ came and made a way for us to be reconciled. What This forgiveness that the author of Psalm 130 is looking forward to, we have partially realized in the person of Jesus because he has come and made a way, forgiveness To be available to all who would believe. But moving on to the second part of verse 4, we see the result that forgiveness produces, and that is the reverence of God. Other translations might say the fear of God. But with you there's forgiveness, so that you may be revered, or so that you may be feared. As previously mentioned, when confronted with our sins, we experience hopelessness or grief over them. Now there's two kinds of grief or hopelessness that our sin produces. There's godly grief, and there's worldly grief. And this is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 and 11. Paul's expressing that he does not regret his scathing letter, first letter to the Corinthians, and the grief that it caused them, starting in verse 7 or starting in verse 10 of chapter 7, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, the grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you have showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So when confronted with our sins, worldly sorrow, worldly grief is this idea of woe is me. Everything is bad. Everything is terrible. And it is, it is a hopelessness that leads to death. It is a hopelessness that does not lead you to God, but to wallow in your own self-pity and to never leave it. Godly grief, on the other hand, is an understanding of what you've done, but also an understanding of what God has done for you. You are grieved because of what you've done. You are grieved because of your sin, but it motivates you to turn to the one who can forgive your sins. And it motivates you to change in your actions in your life away from what you have been grieved of. This idea is expressed in Psalm 130. His forgiveness should cause the reverence of God. And it should cause us to reproduce what Paul expressed was produced in the Corinthians a, a desire to clear ourselves, an indignation, fear, deep longing, zeal, and justice. It is a purification of ourselves in submission to a holy God, understanding what might have been if God had not intervened in changing and following him faithfully because of what he has done for us. Our hope is indeed in God. Only he can forgive, only through Christ do we have hope of reconciliation with God. And as we move into examining verses five and six, we know that this is a hope that is worth waiting for. Our hope is worth waiting for. In verse 5, the psalmist says he waits for Yahweh. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in in his word. Now we are in a different stage of waiting than the psalmist. He was waiting for the first coming of the Messiah, the, the advent, what we are celebrating today. We have realized God putting into action his plan for the redemption and salvation of his people. We have realized this. He waits and he puts his hope in God's word. Now, this idea of God's word can be a little confusing when we think about the ways that we use the word of God. There is the word of God when we refer to the Bible. This is the Bible is the word of God. There is the word of God as seen in John 1, the logos, the the embodiment of Christ. Then we see passages like this that speak of the word of God. I hope in his word. Based on the contextual use of it, The the author is putting his hope in the words that God has spoken. He is putting his hope in the things that God has said. This includes his commands and promises, including his promise to send the Messiah revealed to be, be Jesus. He is hoping and believing and waiting that God will do what God has said he will do. And there are two primary principles I think we gain from this idea of waiting for the Lord. The first thing we see is that God keeps his promises. What God has promised to us, what God has said to us, the things we hope for, the things we wait for, that have still not been revealed to us, are things that God will do. God will keep his promises. People may regularly break their promises, but the Lord is faithful. He fulfilled his promise in sending Jesus, and he will keep all the other promises He has made, including Christ's return, including the reward that awaits, the forgiveness of sins, eternity with him. We also see that the Lord is worth waiting for. Have you ever been really excited about something only to be let down? Perhaps a friend recommended a restaurant for you to only end up with food poisoning, or uh, maybe your favorite sports team flops when it was supposed to be their year I know in my life when I was in middle school, I had a favorite book series that, that I really enjoyed, and they were going to make it into a movie. And so a friend of mine that we both read the books went to see it, and it was awful. It was so bad that they did not make the rest of the movies out of these books. It was a, it was a major disappointment. There's no doubt been many times in your life where someone has told you or recommended something, and your experience was not what they said it would be. But what I can tell you with confidence today that the Lord is worth waiting for. What we are waiting for will exceed every expectation we can conceive of. No matter how many times we've been let down for what we've waited for, this is not the case with God. Consider Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. When we go through hard times or you have a a kind of a difficult day or a difficult time, you kind of weigh the pros and the cons. It's like, yeah, these bad things happen, but at the end of the day, we got to do this. And you try to figure out if it was worth it. Paul says in Romans, it's not even going to be worth comparing. The hard things, the, the hopelessness we feel, the suffering that we feel, everything we encounter in this life... Will be worth it 10 times over, a million times over, when we are in eternity with God. So God keeps His promises, and what He has promised and what He will do will far exceed any of our expectations. And then moving on to the next part of this passage, we see a further call to wait on the Lord as something that is certain in the refrain more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. So this invokes the idea of people who are waiting eagerly for the morning as it marks the end of their shift and it marks the end of the potential danger. The watchman's job would have been to watch through the night to make sure that someone doesn't try to take advantage while people are sleeping. No doubt this would probably be hard as we see in Scripture through the disciples that sometimes when people are called to watch, they fall asleep. So these people probably waited for the morning because it marked the end of their shift, but also there would be no longer the threat that they are waiting for. And it also indicates the certainty of what is to come. Because as the watchmen wait, they certainly know that morning will come. Every day when you go to sleep, morning will come. Sometimes it feels like too fast, but morning will come. So this is how we wait on the Lord, eagerly, with anticipation, knowing that he will come. And after all this is said, there is a call for Israel to put their hope in the Lord. There is a call to hope in God. So in this psalm so far, we've walked through the reality of hopelessness, the hopelessness that is present because of our own sinfulness, the reality of the Lord's forgiveness, that forgiveness belongs to Him and He alone forgives, that this forgiveness should motivate us to live a life of reverence and obedience, that, this hope is worth, that the, Lord's, the hope of the Lord's forgiveness is worth waiting for, and that this is a hope that will certainly be fulfilled. And it's almost as though he's concluding his case. The psalmist says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in Yahweh. This is the precursor to the gospel. He tells them all these things. He tells them of their guilt before God. He tells them of the Lord's forgiveness and says to put your hope in the Lord. The hope of the Lord, that the hope of the Lord will bring about forgiveness and redemption. where an awareness of sinfulness and realizing our sin brings guilt before the Lord. The hope of the Lord brings about forgiveness and redemption. What we celebrate in Christmas is that in Christ, we have a realization of this hope. In Christ, we have a realization of all that has been promised. All that God was preparing in the Old Testament to do, he has fulfilled and done in Christ. In the, the call to Israel is the same call that we must heed today. Put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. Why? Because there is faithful love with him. This is love that will not fade, love that will not change because of what we do or do not do. This is faithful love, the love that only God can give to you. Put your hope in the Lord why because there is redemption in abundance. We all need that, don't we? We don't need a little bit of redemption. We all need an abundance of redemption that is available in the Lord. This is nothing that you can do or have there is nothing that you can do or have done that the Lord cannot forgive. There is no one that is too far. There is no one that has sinned enough that God's redemption cannot reach them. God, will. there is redemption and abundance available with him. Put put your hope in the Lord. Why? Because he will redeem you and forgive you of all of your sins. This is the promise that was to Israel, but is now available to all who would believe. A few weeks ago, uh, when I was at my sister's wedding, I know Nick Scott preached on Romans 1.16. This is the reality of this promise. The gospel is the fulfillment of this hope. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. You see, in Psalm 130, they already understood it. They knew that God would redeem. They knew that God would forgive. They knew that they needed His forgiveness. But in Christ, what we see is this expansion of God's forgiveness to anyone who would believe. That it expands beyond the borders of Israel. That that God's redemption came through Israel Through his relationship with them, and is now expanded and available to all people who would believe and call on him. So, the question that we must answer today is where is your hope? Even as a believer in this room today, you need to ask where is your hope? Are you hoping in something lesser? Are you hoping in something less? Are you hoping in your own abilities, your own ability to overcome the sin in your life, to do better, to try harder, to be a better person, to provide for yourself, to build something that will last, something that is secure? I don't know why, as people, we can't figure out that no matter how hard we try, we cannot build something that will last forever. The Bible, it only, just, just looking in the Bible, there are kingdoms that rise, kingdoms that fall. No matter how wealthy they are, now how great they are, eventually these kingdoms perish and topple. Because they are finite. No matter what we do, no matter how strong we are, no matter how healthy we are, at some point our bodies fail us. Are you hoping what other people can do for you? That's one of the biggest things we need to make sure that as you enter into marriage... As people enter into marriage, and the married people in here I'm sure can attest, if you're hoping that your spouse will meet your every desire, every hope, you're going to be disappointed. If you're hoping that your children will bring you fulfillment and this idea of a perfect life, that you can, they will be exactly what you want them to be, you're going to be disappointed. If you look to celebrities or, or politicians or whoever it may be that you think might be a beacon of hope in this world, you're going to be disappointed. Only God can provide the hope that is sure. Only God has the faithful love that we need that will sustain us and keep us going. Or are you hoping in Christ, the only one who can forgive, the only one who will never fail you, the one with whom there is redemption in abundance? And the next question you need to ask is, has this hope in him produced the reverence and fear that it ought to cause? Is your life post-following Christ, different than your life before following Christ? Was there godly grief in your heart? Did you become aware of your sinfulness? And that sinfulness, that awareness of your sin drove you to God and drove you to a fear and reverence of Him, to follow Him faithfully, to follow Him in obedience? Are you seeking Him faithfully? Are you sharing this hope with the world? Because through Christ, we have... Redemption Through Christ, all who would believe have redemption. We must share this hope with the world. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Because everyone alive is in need of this hope. And if you're here this morning and you question whether you have a relationship with God, you question whether you are following Him, we must understand the reality of, of this predicament in which we find ourselves. You know, part of the things we're praying for in our weekly prayer emphasis is that there would be awakening in Evansville and there would be awakening in the world. And in the first Great Awakening, one of the instrumental figures was Jonathan Edwards. And on July 8th, 1741, he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in Enfield, Connecticut. Before this day, the Great Awakening had already begun to take place in America, but had not spread to Enfield. But after this day, it exploded with the awakening of God. Now, it's important to understand that that unlike George Whitefield, who is a a major part of the awakening, the first great awakening, who is a dynamic preacher, who preached and many people were enthralled with his preaching, Jonathan Edwards mostly wrote out his manuscripts and read them in a lecture-type voice. So on this day, as he shares his sermon, he puts forth the hard truth that God's just anger burns against sin. That there is wrath that is to come and punishment that is to come against sinfulness. And that those who do not turn to him will face a just destruction because of their own sin. And it is only because of the grace of God that they have not already met this punishment. I can't almost imagine what this caused because in his sermon, while he was preaching, people began to cry out for him to stop to stop preaching, they couldn't stand to hear it. They were crying out, how can I be saved? They were crying out, oh, I'm going to hell. And at one point he had to tell them to be quiet so he'd keep preaching. This is the reality that if you are separated from Christ today, if you have questions about whether you know him, you need to be aware that if you are separated from Christ, if you are hopeless because of your sin and you have not hoped in him yet, there's a reason for your hopelessness. Because if you stand before him, you will be condemned on your own merit. If you stand before him only hoping, well, I'm a good person, you will be condemned. There's this popular phrase that goes around, well, well, only God can judge me. That should terrify you. It's true. What people say doesn't really matter much. What matters at the end was that God will judge us. And the only hope we have is through Jesus Christ. And so today, as we prepare for Christmas, if you don't know him today, my call to you is the same call of the psalmist, turn to the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Hope in Jesus, what he has done for you. You don't have to do anything, but receive what he has already done, to hope in the Lord, to accept this forgiveness. Because if sin is counted, who can stand? But with God and God alone, there is forgiveness and redemption in abundance. As we head to this time of invitation, I want to challenge you to remember that for your life, to remember the hope that God has given you, the forgiveness that he has given you, the redemption. And if you do not know him today, if you have not made him your Lord and your Savior, you have not repented of your sins and followed him, let today be that day that you turn to him for the very first time. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you that even though we are sinful and even though there is punishment for sin, with you there is grace in abundance. With you, God, and with you alone there is forgiveness. We thank you that you did not withhold yourself but but sent Jesus, that Jesus came in the flesh. Hope in the flesh so that we might have the realization of this forgiveness that's only available in you. God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help convict us in our lives of how we need to follow you more closely, how we need to hope in you for our salvation, hope in you for our sustenance, to follow you more faithfully. Lord, I pray that any who don't know you today would be convicted and would come to follow you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.